I've always believed that the most successful businesses of our future will be those with a strong sense of purpose. And my guest today, Tim Mead, has this most crazy powerful connection with the environment, but also the mission that the yogurt is on. That's Yo Valley. Yo Valley might be the blue pot you see in your fridge every single day, but my goodness, it is so much more. I have just spent the last hour and 10 minutes learning about the way we all consume, how we've got to do better and the connection that we must have with nature. My mind is blown. So get your pen and paper because you're going to want to scribble down so many facts and promises to self after this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Tim. It is such a pleasure to meet you. Yo Valley, one of the largest, best-known organic brands in the country, and you're on Conversations of Inspiration. Welcome. Thank you very much, Holly. I have got many pots of Yo Valley in my fridge. I'm not a cook, but my husband is. And actually, I received your cookbook as well. So we have that, and we've used it quite a few times. But I would love to talk to you not only about this blue pot that sits in our fridge, but also I'd love to talk to you about the brand that you've created. And I think it's going to come as a surprise to some people who are listening. And I hope it's going to be highly inspirational because it has blown my mind. But as ever, we start from the beginning, your childhood. I researched that farming's in your blood. And actually, the family's been in farming in Somerset since the 15th century. Is that right? Yep, so it come from a long line of farmers and now a long line of yoghurt makers. I suppose it wasn't a strange thing back then to have this career passed on generation to generation. No, and I think it's only recently that, um, you know, with the connectivity and transport and people feeling more confident, that they sort of set off to make their fortunes around the world or to go to different parts of the country. But, you know, sort of 50 years ago, Quite often in communities, you know, you take over the baker from your father or you become the sort of the blacksmith and, you know, you just take over the profession and the trade that you would learn because a lot of these manual professions or whatever were all about learning. So obviously if you're brought up in a family, then 
you know, you get to learn the trade from a very, very early age. So from a farming point of view, I mean, I was driving tractors at the age of 10 or something, and then I got banned for two or three years, and then I was allowed to take it up when I was about 15 again. Um, Was that your rebellious streak on the farm? Is that what happened? No, I think my mother put a foot down when I sort of had a slight accident at the age of 10 on a tractor. Your parents bought Holt Farm in 1961. They were both very young at the time. It was 150 acres and 30 cows. And it was where you and your sisters were all born. What was it like actually growing up on a farm? I think for potentially non-farmers, it feels quite wholesome and it feels like a good life. But tell me about that. If you take yourself back to that younger Tim, what was it like? Oh, it was just it was just totally exciting i mean i mean i remember i remember my mother telling me when we were sitting down looking at yet another failed school report that the teacher's excuse for this was that it was really difficult to teach sons and daughters of farmers because you're sitting in the classroom thinking oh when i get home i'm going to go off and do this on the farm or i wonder if they've started silage making or have they started lambing yet and so you're at school being taught the things that you know the maths and the english and everything that you're supposed to and yet your mind is constantly on more exciting things and then when you got home obviously you could head out and yeah. Get involved in all in all the exciting things of that happen on a farm. Potentially not homework, sitting at your desk. Potentially not homework, yes, absolutely. Uh, I never thought of that. You see, you basically you had this freedom, this active self that was then sort of caged into the school. I often listen to Ken Robinson's um, TED talk um on YouTube and he talks about, you know, finding children's you know, what they're great at and how he speaks about this dancer who couldn't sit still at school and she ended up becoming, you know, the teachers thought there was a problem with her, et cetera, et cetera. Well, she was just actually going to become one of the best dancers in the, in the world and travelled the world dancing. And I think that there is something about that, that schools just don't cater for the difference and the uniqueness in our children. And it's so fascinating. So you actually weren't roped into the family business from a young age. You wanted to be in it. What did that entail as a kid? Was it early mornings before school? Yeah, I mean, it was everything that you'd experience on a farm. And um, But at the same time, my parents were, you know, with their wise heads on, were saying that, you know, farming is a very difficult profession it's difficult to earn money out of farming and they were very keen that I got educated to a to a certain level so that if farming wasn't an option that I'd be able to go off and earn money elsewhere so they were really keen to you know invest in education I was sent to private boarding school not that they could afford it but they just wanted you know to provide me with the tools to be able to sort of look after myself and, and earn a decent living. So were you sent away to boarding school? Yes, I went I went to boarding school at the age of eight. So that must have been hard to leave the farm, to leave that world, or or did you soon quickly forget it? Well I suppose you yeah, you holidays and everything like that and you'd whenever you come home you'd you'd get involved in the farm. I remember going back to school once and um, you know, they thought there was something wrong with me because I was sleeping for days at a time. And yet when I'd been home for half term, we just spent the whole time planting potatoes till 10, 11 o'clock at night. And therefore I just got, got back to school absolutely shattered. Um, <laughs> you know, but I thoroughly enjoyed school. It was great fun. I mean, it's like, you know, being with your mates 24-7. You actually trained as an accountant when you left school. 
at the time, did you have life plans that didn't involve farming? Well, I suppose when I left school, I possibly had farming down as what I would like to do. Unfortunately, I had a place to go to university. And 40 years ago, if you had a place to go to university and you didn't get the grades, then the option wasn't to go to other universities or do other courses. Um, because I think it was only 10 or 15% of people leaving further education actually got to go to university. Mm. So I was one of those who didn't get to go to university and I was going to go and do economic agriculture. So my options were severely limited at that stage. Um, so I went off and trained as an accountant. And and were you a good accountant? I think I was just about getting by as an accountant. <laughs> but what it does is, you know, to go on and be involved in running a business in later years, it just means instead of having to sit down and have to have things explained to you from the accountants, have you got any cash yes. and what, you, you know, it's just instinctive in you. Tell me, you're you're now a young Tim, you're, you're youngish, Tim, you're in your 20s, you're an accountant. You then in the 1970s, your parents sort of had this opportunity, I think, to buy a neighbouring farm. And around this time, is it right that your dad had this brainwave about how they might be able to use up all of the leftover milk that they had had from making cream. And this always was a decision that helped shape the company Yo Valley that we know today. Tell me about what the impact it had on your business, because I think that's quite a future thinking dad at that time. Were people diversifying like this on farms? Um, well, I think so in the last 50 years, we've lost 90% of dairy farmers. My gosh. So we had 150,000 dairy farmers. We're now down to 12,000 dairy farmers. So I think it was pretty obvious that consolidation was happening. But then we used to have, you know, 100 chains of supermarkets. Now we've really got six or seven and the same with banks. And, the, you know, so the same has happened in farming that has happened across sort of businesses across the country. So I guess my father saw the writing on the wall and he realised that he had to do something to make the farm that he wanted to live on and bring his family up on. He wanted, he needed to find a way of earning more money than he would do if he was just selling milk from the farm gate. And that's where we started doing cream teas and pick your own strawberries and all that sort of thing um, on a neighbouring farm that we just bought at Lag Farm, which was the farm just above Holt Farm. And when you take all the cream off your milk, you're left with skim milk. And then it was, in those days, the choice with skim milk is you either to feed it to pigs or people were beginning to make yoghurt and things out of it. Um, it was seen as a sort of waste product, virtually. And in those days, I think yoghurt was just about being brought across the, you know, from Europe. Yeah. You know, you had things like the ski brand coming in from... Oh, um, yes. I, yes. And so he basically took a punt and said, actually, I think yoghurt is the way to go. So in Somerset, we're blessed with, you know, at that stage, we had hundreds of farmhouse cheesemakers, but he couldn't afford to go into farmhouse cheesemaking because if you want to make cheese that's matured for a year, you've got to be able to not have any income yes. until you've, yes. you know, you make your first cheese today and you sell it in 12 months time. And yogurt wasn't popular. I remember interviewing Joe Fairley, who created Green and Black's chocolate on this podcast. And she was told yeah, great, Joe, but no one's going to eat dark chocolate in this country, right? And similarly to your father, I'm sure he was told, 
that yogurt was such an early adopter product at that point in time. Did that worry him or did he did was he quite entrepreneurial anyway? Yeah, totally entrepreneurial. Um he would have a go at anything and you know, he left school when he was 14 and therefore didn't have the best education, but through so sometimes you see people who through sheer willpower and strength of personality can just make things happen. Yes. So he was one of those, you know, if he if he if he had an idea and he wanted to do it, he would just move heaven and earth to to make it happen. And that's what he did. So we bought the farm above Holt Farm and we bought all lots of secondhand equipment from various milk dairies around the place and we set about learning how to make yogurt and how to start selling it to the local shops and, you know, the classic in the old Morris Minor van and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's how it started. Before we carry on with your story, do you share that philosophy in terms of having a vision, going for it, just working? Uh, you know, I can only imagine a farming mentality of working hard. It's like double what all of us know of working hard and just driving that energy into an idea. Uh, do you know what I mean? Almost that that is the thing that gives it the energy. That's the thing that springs it to life is that sheer determination and hard work. Um I'm not sure that I would have the ability that my father had to take an idea and just make it happen with no resources. Obviously, training as an accountant allows you to take something that's been established as an idea or a starting point. I, I see it a bit like a relay, you know, sort of the baton was handed to me and I had certain skills that can take it to another stage. And now my job is to hand that baton on to a new team of younger and more youthful and, you know, more energetic people because everything's got different stages. The farm thrived and the farm had grown to 350 acres in the years that followed. But in 1990, there was a terrible family tragedy and that your father, Roger, died in a farming accident. And I'm so sorry to have found that out. And it must have been an awful time for you. Um, and your family, it must have had a huge impact. Yeah, I mean, yeah, tragedy and in, in any family, you have to come together and you have to deal with it and everybody deals with it in their own ways. So when something happens like that, you've got two choices, really. You've got to regroup and retarget what you're going to do or you basically... I don't know, just give up or whatever. And I guess as a, as a family, my mother has gone on to basically be the farmer in our family for the last 40, 30 years now. Um, and I think she's done a remarkable job in that. And she keeps telling me to, my job is to buy the milk from her and turn it into yogurts and to pay her more money than she would get as if she was selling it to anybody else. So I think it's one of those moments when you either sink or swim and for us, it was an obvious that, yeah, the responsibility that you, that I suddenly found myself with, you know, whether it was the people we employed or the family or the suppliers to our business, I could probably say that before it happened, I was possibly not as focused on making a success of what we were doing because I was doing it jointly with my father and I'd been working with him for 18 months, having sort of finished my accountancy training. But you know, there's no sugarcoating the situation. You've got to pull your finger out and basically make it happen. And that responsibility, I guess, 
landed full and squarely on my shoulders. Well, am I right in thinking you were 26 years old? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, pr- it's pretty young, right? It's a, it's a young age to have that responsibility. But I suppose, as you said, you've had your dad's dream, your mother's talents, and, and then you took it all on. What was that responsibility like? when you took it on? Because obviously you're there, you've had those 18 months, but it must have been a big change in your life to have that responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely massive. And um, you then go through a sort of fuzzy phase where I can't really remember. <laughs> I don't know whether that's because <laughs> I'm I'm approaching 60 and I'm, I'm really getting a bit forgetful, or whether you were just so full on and so busy that it just, life became a blur. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember my wife, Sarah, who I used to visit in London when she sort of, before we got married, she used to call them wake me, feed me weekends because I'd arrive in London and she'd just keep waking me up, feeding me, and then I'd go back to sleep again. So wow. you do have to, at certain stages of life, put in the hours if you're expecting, you know, or if you're trying to to do something greater than than the the what I guess is is the norm. Tell me what if you go back if you can remember in your blurry years, give me an idea of what that is. Give me an idea of when you woke up and that the farm it was all on your shoulders. What what sort of hour would it start and what would be some of the tasks that you would be having to do? Um well, I suppose, I suppose you know, in, in those very early days, you'd be responsible for opening up the dairies. And sometimes you'd just be the last man out at 12 o'clock at night, having put the bins out and, and, and locked up. And what time, do, what time do you open the dairies? Uh, probably about four o'clock. In the morning? In the morning, yeah. So, yeah, so four hours sleep was the sort of what you were living off. That wouldn't be the norm. I mean, you'd probably get home at 10 o'clock most nights or, or whatever. That would just be the extremes of, you know, some weeks when things weren't going right, you'd have to be up at four o'clock and back at 10 o'clock at night. And mm-hmm. and then in, in the middle of that, you'd be doing your accountancy job, you'd be doing, you know, managing jobs, you'd also be doing physical jobs, because, you know, there were still physical jobs that you could do that would take the load off the operation. Um, but that's no, that's, that's no different from every business that starts up people put in extraordinary amounts of time and effort and all that sort of um, energy I yeah. think is the key thing I think just in this early stage of this podcast that's what I'm hearing you say and I have to say that everybody that I've ever interviewed knowing my own experiences from building these two businesses and sometimes when you are you know, getting those, that lack of sleep. And I'm not comparing it to yours, by the way, because I, I think farming can be on the extreme end of that because of the phys- physicality, the two sides of your your existence. It's different. But I do not know a great brand that has started without literally giving it everything to the point that you do not think you can survive it. And that is, it's, you know, almost at that breaking point is when I feel brands are created and, you know, I do not believe in unicorns and I do not believe in this sort of overnight success and all these sorts of things, you know, and it's it's fantastic to hear you say that. And for anyone listening, if if you're doing this, you're on the right path. You know, if you are burning through the hours on your dreams, you are doing the right thing. Nothing comes easy to anybody. Tell me, Tim, Yo Valley Organic Brand was born... Uh, in 1994, am I right in saying that? And this was an unorthodox move. So again, 
was that something that you wanted to drive? Is that your stamp, the Tim stamp on the business? Um, I, I think it's so. If you go back into the very early days of organic farming, you go back a hundred years, and probably everybody was an organic farmer. Yeah. And I think I've talked about this with the guys at work. Um, so organic is got a reputation for a lot of things that you're not allowed to do. But also, I think we've undersold ourselves for the benefits that you get just by being organic. So yes, we don't use artificial oil-based fertilizers or chemicals or sprays or pesticides, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, it's about, you know, some of the standards are about the size of the herds that you can have. You know, the cows have got to have X amount of access to grazing. So for me, it protects a size of business that I feel is the right size of business. So the reason we went into organic was partly because of the pesticides and the sprays and the and the chemicals, knowing that that was not producing natural healthy food. But also it was about community, the size of the dairy farms that were were in the UK. And I think what we don't do is we don't value the production of really healthy natural food as much as we potentially should do. So the government, I think at the time, were going through this thing saying that every dairy farmer, the dairy farmer's wife should be a district nurse, or you should do bed and breakfast, or you should have a farm petting zoo. And that was just a distraction. There is nothing wrong with two or three or four people working on a dairy farm, producing the best product and really concentrating on looking after the land and the cows in the best way that they can. So in the same way as sort of we've discussed how companies, you know, that there are massive chains of whether it's shops, supermarkets, pizza restaurants, whatever it is, the danger of farming becoming like that and being owned by corporations would mean that you would destroy communities, but more importantly, our ability to produce natural, healthy food in a localised environment would just disappear. Mm. And that was the main impetus as to why we put our all behind trying to create a a dairy brand that supported organic farmers. And that is what we've tried to do really for 30 years and, you know, a, a huge, a big question, you know, for many people who are listening, you know, when they're in those supermarkets or trying to choose between organic and not organic or the price differences that there there are, I, I don't know. What's your whole view on the way that we are consuming at the moment? Because it, it depresses. I was speaking to Sir Tim Smith, uh, obviously founder of Eden Project, about you know, he was talking about Brexit and he he basically said, if the government had said something like, you know, we're going to have a farming revolution in our country, we are going to now support and buy from the UK, UK is going to buy from the UK, I would have voted to uh, leave, right? And he was a Remainer. But no one did that. You know, he said there were so many things that we could have done at that point in time and how the food revolution could come from within, could come from the talent that we have in this country already that we do a disjustice to. Do you have views on that in terms of the way we're consuming, the way we value things? Well, if you go back to the 40% of our disposable income 50 years was spent on food, now it is 10%. I think... 10% is too low. 
because what you get is, you know, our true north is natural healthy food. Our true south, in terms of the thing that we're fighting against, is ultra-processed food. Unfortunately, industrial farming produces the raw material that goes into the ultra-processed food. And what we're trying to do is find a way to grow the food production that produces the healthy natural food, but from a system that also looks after the environment. So if we're spending a quarter of the amount of money on food that we were 50 years ago, and organic in some cases is slightly more expensive, and in the case of yogurts, by the way, it's not that much more expensive, then I think we should just continue down the route of trying to explain to people that it's the consumerism of other things that is making the choice. But it's very difficult to get into the the, the debates around, well, how much should you spend on fashion? How much should you spend on holiday? We now spend more money on interconnectivity, the internet, Netflix, our mobile phones, than we do on food. Oh, my gosh. We spend more than 10% of our disposable income, in some cases, on digital consumption. Um, how much you're spending on your computer, your phone, your internet services, all that sort of stuff, um, your Wi-Fi contracts. And therefore, when there is nothing else to spend money on, spending 40% on food, you can understand. In the last 50 years, the options of spending money on everything else, consumerism, has gone stratospheric. So we can obviously go on holiday more we can drive yeah the choices we have and therefore it's difficult to judge somebody and say oh, well you shouldn't you know you're being offered all this lovely stuff why shouldn't you accept it if it enhances our lives and makes us feel more fulfilled gosh i think the the slight answer might be is you know and there are many many you know people who've done investigations into shopping and spending money and how much it's it becomes a drug and an addiction in your brain and i really do look at some elements now and think that we are beginning to get the message that it's not just about consuming lots and lots of stuff and it's being selective and going for quality what what are you seeing there when you say that what's started to warm your heart again well, there are lots of movements that are into sustainable fashion, as an example. Um, if I take my daughter as an example, she would say that she is, you know, never buying new stuff, and she, but she's still very stylish and loves clothes. But it's it's it it becomes a challenge to them. It's a challenge to her to to um, live sustainably. Correctly, yeah. You you said um, when researching you to get the best out of nature, you need to respect nature push nature too hard and she will bite you back. What did you mean by that? Well, I think if we look at the human race, we are really quite insignificant to the world and the environment. I mean, if the human race didn't exist, nature would thrive in all sorts of ways across the planet. So when we talk about extinction and all these sorts of things, I'm pretty sure that if the human race becomes extinct, the rest of nature will thrive because we won't be around to mess it all up. And you could argue that actually, that we always put ourselves as the most important. We put the human race is the most important and it's all about us. And I think the point I was trying to make is 
that if we don't respect nature, it will be our undoing. But the power of nature to heal and to look after the planet will be here way beyond we are. Yeah, I've never heard anyone say that. Actually, I, I think I sort of agree at this point in time. You know, we maybe need to just step aside and allow the, the whole world to be completely beautiful and and uh, untouched by us humans. It's not obviously great for the human species, that comment, but um, let me go back to Yo Valley um, and thank you for sharing those thoughts. I, I, you know, this is what I love this podcast about because it always, always takes me to the next level of understanding industry and a way of maybe thinking and bringing it into my own life. In 2020, you decided to revamp your packaging, putting the word organic front and centre. You added a QR code so customers can scan and watch a film about the brand's ideology, reinforcing this message of putting nature first. Do you feel that in the wake of the pandemic, people are perhaps re-evaluating their relationship with the environment and what they eat and where it comes from? Do you think that potentially... I don't know, maybe you saw it before that, that we had a bit of a pause. Yes, I, th I, I think there is a growing trend of supporting products that are... But it's. I think it is diverging. I think there is people who are looking for natural and healthy food, but there are also people who are looking for solutions to climate crisis yeah. by putting forward alternatives to natural healthy food. But the whole world is not binary. So, for instance, I love oats and I have porridge in the winter most days. But if you turn those oats into a ultra-processed product that is not digestible by us as humans, et cetera, et cetera, then why don't we just eat the oats? Because you're getting all the nutrients or you're getting more nutrients that way. So I really I understand why people are looking to technology to produce food in bioreactors, you know, whether it's producing proteins from microbes or et cetera, et cetera. But I think if we go down that route and produce our food and nutrients that way, we will ignore the looking after the the land in a way that's been done for hundreds of years in a more natural and, and healthy way. So for me, we're at a crossroads where some people are saying that all food in the future will be able to be produced in laboratories and chemical tanks yeah, and underground. all that sort of stuff. And I just think that's really sad. I mean, I, I live to eat. I love food. It's, a, it's about community. It's about sitting down and sharing. It's about variety. It's about seasonal. It's, you know, if we've got to the stage where we're going to have so many humans on the planet that the only way we can feed those humans is by uh, producing things in bioreactors and et cetera, et cetera, then I really don't look forward to that future for myself or my my family what i would love to do is to be able to produce food in a natural healthy way which basically benefits the planet and us as humans 
As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hi, I'm Kirsty, and I'm the founder and editor of Sunshine Magazine. Sunshine is a quarterly print and digital parenting magazine focused on raising boys for a more equal world. That's sun with an O, not sun with a U. It all started when I had my son and I realised there were no resources out there for parents wanting to break down gender stereotypes for their sons, unlike when I'd had my daughter. So being a writer and content creator, I decided I'd make my own. Now, four years later, I'm sure I'm in the same position as many of you, not just creating my magazine, but also being the marketing, advertising, PR, accounting, sales and social media team as well. So I'm always on the lookout for ways to streamline my processes. That's why I was excited to get a chance to try out the Adobe Express app. This week, I needed to do an update to my media pack for advertisers. And using the Adobe Express templates meant it was a doddle to create branded slides. It even had my brand fonts already integrated. And as I could load in my brand color palette, everything seamlessly dovetailed with my existing brand identity and visuals. So prospective advertisers can get a real feel for the magazine. It also had some really neat little tools like being able to remove the background from photographs at a click so I can easily create cute little graphics and stickers for my Instagram. If you'd like to see how I'm using these new graphical powers, you can find me at sunshinemagazine.com or on Instagram and TikTok at sunshinemagazine. Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. We've seen a boom in the rise of plant-based milk in recent years. As a dairy farmer, I'm wondering what your view might be. And... I'm assuming you meant the porridge, the oats that you eat in the wintertime being highly processed. You're talking about oat milk, are you? Yes. Tell me about that. So you're going to educate me here. You're a really nice guy, so you won't shout at me, but just hear my naivety. Okay. So you're, and maybe this is what other people might have thought as well. We're told don't drink milk when you get older. It can be cancerous to you. You're told, yeah, okay, yeah. You, everyone, listen, he's wincing at me saying this. So I'm like, okay, so as a woman, potentially I shouldn't be drinking or eating dairy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to train myself to like oat milk. I can't do anything else. And so now my coffee has oat milk in it and I feel quite smug about it because I think I'm benefiting my body. Over to you, Tim. Well, <laughs> there's... Um, I'll ditch it if you tell me Coca-Cola makes all this stuff as well, uh, which I think you might. Well, they probably do own some brands that, um, you know, so Coca-Cola own Innocent and Innocent make a whole range of plant milks. So there's nothing wrong with giving people choices. So our true north is natural, healthy food. Yeah. Okay. The UK consume something like 55% ultra-processed food. And there's a there's a Nova scale definition of four categories of food. The first one is natural healthy food. The second one is things that you use to 
cook with, like salt and pepper and oil and etc. The third one is slightly processed food, which would be tinned tomatoes, frozen peas, things that sort of look and you can tell what they were. And then you've got the ultra-processed food category, where you're getting the chemical set out and you're adding loads and loads of ingredients and stabilizers and enzymes and all these sorts of things. The UK consumed 55% ultra-processed food. France consumes 15% ultra-processed food. Oh, my gosh. And there is a direct correlation between a country's consumption of ultra-processed food and the health of its people and the health of its environment. Okay. There's lots of work being done, but the tipping point is around 20 or 25% ultra-processed food. So the good news is you can go and have your pork scratchings, you can have your Watsits or your Pringles on the plane, or it's not hair shirt. You can have your donuts. So we're allowed, our bodies are able to deal with a certain amount of ultra-processed food. And ultra-processed foods might have seven, 10, 15, 20 different ingredients. And the reason why they're not great for us is that our bodies aren't used to taking things with 20 ingredients and actually working out what we can get from them and how what is available, et cetera, et cetera. So our point about alternative and you know plant milks, et cetera, is increasing your diet of coconuts or almonds or oats is absolutely brilliant, okay? Consuming them in a way that might not be good for you is not good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you look and see most of those products and whether it's the, the meats that, that is being grown in laboratories, in petri dishes, et cetera, et cetera, and you actually analyze what is in those products, you're not going to be able to get the sort of the, you know, so calcium in milk is great for, for, for bones. And actually there's a whole load of research that says as you get older, you should be. Yeah. Eating or consuming more dairy because it gives you the calcium that is available to protect you, you know, from, um, from arthritis and things like that. Arthritis and brittle bones. So, you know, if you believe nature created natural food to do a job over a billion years, and if you also think that somebody's come up with an alternative in the last 10 years that is better, then I trust a billion years of nature's development rather than the companies that have come up with some quick fixes that invariably they're going to make, you know, they're intending to make a load of money out of. Yes. So a billion years of nature, you know, gets my vote. I'm changing my coffee order from today. I honestly am. And, you know, and this is the thing. These podcasts are helping people actually understand you know, from the experts, it's why now and again, I get on my sort of box and I talk about the fact that, you know, if our governments actually had the likes of yourself, you know, the likes of, um, you know, a lot of our founders who are in the food industry, able to actually represent what the human race should be eating here in the UK, for instance, across the globe, um, we would be far better off. How simple was that explanation and yet quite shocking, what did you say, that over 55% of what we're eating is highly processed. It's classified as ultra-processed food. The Soil Association had a very, very good report out in September, which basically updated a previous report that they issued about the effects of ultra-processed food. And and I can imagine it leads to chronic illness, etc., etc., like what you just said there. 
we've spoken about doing the billion years of the planet. And so sustainability and a force of good is something that we always talk about on this podcast. You're a champion of sustainable practices. And so this is the key to sort of the ethos of the whole business. Tell me about how you're actually doing this, because I know you're reducing food waste, you're using solar energy. Has this been something that has been trickling in over time or is this has this been a new concerted effort? I think efficiency is, you know, obviously less waste is more efficient. And therefore, whether you're doing it for, you know, we've been doing what we've been doing for 30 or 40 years. We haven't radically changed anything in the last five or 10 years. Um, so we've been you know, buying green energy for over 25 years. Um, we've been investing in solar farms and power you know, to actually not just have to buy green electricity, but to generate it ourselves for the last 15 years. So any efficient business will obviously be looking to reduce waste, be more efficient, you know, use less plastic. So there's a lot of things that that just make it good business sense. Okay, the main divergence from that was so when you produce organic food, you are no longer able to buy oil-based fertilizers for the energy to put onto your fields to grow the crops. You have to rely on the sun's energy. So the vast majority of our decision to farm organically and to build an organic brand, you know, going back 25 years, is 25 years ago, we said, we're not going to have oil driving the energy for the crops and the and the things. We're going to rely on the sun's energy. And it is that single thing that far outweighs all of the other minor decisions about the double-decker lorries that we've got or all the electric cars or the removing of packaging or focusing on recycled PET packaging as the, the 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 most efficient, sustainable sort of form of getting our products to consumers. The fundamental decision to rely on the sun's energy to produce our food is, you know, knocks everything else into yeah. a cocked hat, really. Yeah. And therefore, we've been doing that for yonks. And probably something that people can take away. You know, it's fine, we can do all our little bits, but what is the biggest thing that we can do in our businesses and in our homes, in our lives to make that change? And and is that something you're obviously, you know, sustainability and, and the planet's health is highly on the agenda now. Um, something that you've obviously, you know, long time ago, you were doing, working on these practices. Are you enthused by what's happening do you think that we can do more? Absolutely. I mean, the last couple of years have been a sort of revelation in terms of farming across across the globe. So I guess about three years ago, concern around climate change and greenhouse gases sort of was the single topic. Okay, yep. It was just becoming the number one talked about thing. And that fueled the growth of solar car, you know, the reason why there's lots of electric cars, solar farms, it was really around that discussion. If you look, virtually every single brand has got some claim about you can fly around the world carbon neutral, you can buy this car and it'll be carbon neutral. I mean, everybody's just went bonkers around it. That sort of got interrupted with, you know, a pandemic and now a, a war in Europe. So those topics are slightly taken the agenda away from the the climate crisis talking but it is still a massive issue and what we've seen is 
that farmers across the world have been responding to possibly being poked by the people saying that we should eat protein grown from insects and or meat grown in this laboratory or milk formed out of this squashy stuff or whatever. So farmers, I think, would have felt two or three years ago or three or four years ago sort of slightly on the defensive because big agriculture was being seen as driving greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And organic farming really forgot to tell people that actually ever since we've been doing it, we've been, you know, so we are the solar power. We are the electric car of of food production because we're not relying on oil-based agriculture. But across the world, the regenerative farming movement is just in the last two or three years is responding to the position that industrial farming found itself. And whilst there is lots of information and lots of research needed, the basic principle is that the world has got three times more carbon in the soil of the world than it has in the biosphere, i.e. all the trees and plants. It's got three times more carbon in the soil than the atmosphere, which is causing the, the, you know, and farmers are working out that they can actually be part of the solution and start reversing the carbon that has been lost from the world's soil over the last 200 years. And actually, farmers have realised that through regenerative farming, that they can actually be part of the solution. So if we can grow natural, healthy food whilst contributing to locking up carbon in, in the soils of the world then that is a great place for for farmers to to find themselves. Gosh, yes. And for the general public to have seen the way farmers have been treated, or as you said, this sort of notion of what, you know, what farms were doing, to have that PR almost, you know, that that message turning around is fantastic. Something else that's fantastic that I, and I'm not going to ask you to wrap it, by the way. Um, In 2011, you took a pretty big gamble um, that I have to say, potentially seriously paid off. And I'd love to ask you about this. When you made a two minute advert for Yo Valley, um, it's been called the best ad of all time. And I remember it airing on, I think it was what was it? The X Factor or something like that? Correct. And and yeah, and I went back and I watched it on YouTube, and it is every bit as brilliant as I remember it. So we've just been talking about saving the planet, and then in 2011 we've got farmers rapping on an advert that I think was about a minute long. It must have cost you a fortune. What went into that decision, and did it pay off? I think traditionally farmers have been very bad at selling their products so coming from a long line of farmers and i actually remember when i first joined the the dairy business thinking well i'm a farmer and it's all quite nice in the west country and then actually getting your bag of products and taking them into a supermarket and say here how much are you going to give me for me for me yogurts for a farmer that i found that quite you know, it was it was a mental battle that I had to get over that actually, so now I'm addicted to selling. I think selling is the most important thing in any business. And you've got to be proud about selling things. You've got to be proud about wanting to sell things. And you've got to get a massive high when you actually 
close a deal. That's, you know, businesses, you know, you sell things and you make them or whatever it is. Yeah. So farmers traditionally have not been brilliant at putting themselves forward and selling their products. I think I've overcome that because I'm sort of love that whole process of closing a deal and persuading somebody to do something and all that sort of stuff and trying to get it at the right price. So if we're not great at selling, I think marketing is just another discipline, you know, it's almost a step too far. And I guess the way we've now sort of bottomed it down, having, I mean, I think there's about 2 million books on marketing in the world and <laughs> about 1 million have got this opinion and then the other million have got a million other opinions on on what to do. So as simple West Country folk, it's like we need to start and maintain conversations with our customers, okay? And we've got to tell stories to them and show them the type of people that we are. So, for instance, I think the real value flows through our brand. But to do that, we invite 50,000 people to come to the valley, to go to the organic garden or to come to the festival in August, you know, overlooking Chew Valley Lake for 10,000 people. If you want to be a real business, you've got to tell the story and invite people to come and see what you do. So with the advert that we made, because of budgets, et cetera, et cetera, the risk was is you make something that is very remarkable and then people will remark about it. If you make something that's very bland and people don't talk about it, because all you're wanting to do is become a bigger share of voice, become a, you know, you know, so somebody's going to talk about one of the eight yogurt brands in the UK, you want them to be talking about your brand. And therefore, if you've got loads of money, you can just blitz the world and the media space and get people talking about you and getting that recognition that you require. Or if you can't afford to do that, you've got to do something that is so remarkable that it creates the conversation. And and how we managed to do that, there was lots of very, very good people involved, BBH, the agency in London, you know, the the, the marketing team at Yo Valley. And yeah, it was it was fun. It, it, it was amazing, but it was a big bet right? Wasn't it? it? It cost you a lot of money. Did you know it was like, we're going all in or did you feel confident about it? Did you know that you needed to make, <laughs> I'm taking you back to 2011, but may- maybe you weren't as confident as maybe I'm, I'm thinking you were. It's very difficult to find marketing advisors or executives or whatever that will fill you with total confidence um, that that is going to work or, or not. But at the end of the day, You've got to try, haven't you? I mean, I hope I haven't come across as a pessimist with all the sort of doom no, and gloom and the, the food stuff. Fascinating. But we're total optimists. Um, and all I can say to Neil, our new marketing director, is that there's no pressure if the previous advert that we put out was voted best advert ever. <laughs> I just want to see how he does this autumn when we sort of possibly return with sort of mainstream advertising to remind consumers that we're here, we've got some great values and that we actually want you to buy more of our products. Because, well, there were 16 million viewers on that X Factor when it it came out. Uh, You had 2 million views on YouTube. The soundtrack reached ninth spot in the UK's music charts and was downloaded 30,000 times. So Neil has got a little bit, I mean, it was a rocket launching moment because I know the brand saw a 15% year on year sales uplift. And that is quite unbelievable. And I suppose 
it's a lesson for us all that we've got to go on our gut instinct. You know, as you said, I love what you said, very remarkable. You have to be very remarkable so that they remark. And sometimes I think that we can always sort of be in the queue, not step forward, not actually go to the depths of our brands and bring that forward. And that's certainly a message that I've got coming through from you. Tell me, you you mentioned the festival. You mentioned that this is actually a place, Yo Valley. It's an actual real place. Tell me about this and why, you know, this is obviously all in keeping with your brand. So you're not diversifying here, like you said before, when banks have told, you know, well, you should have a B&B and you should, you know, different things that you just don't fit in a farm. Yes. Um, but you've built that brand that is so, well, takes your values and just shines these values and what you're doing. Was that always your plan or has that just happened over time and, and built up? Um, so our values, as we basically determined sort of 35 years ago, are sort of real, healthy and forever. So we're a real place. The River Yo runs through Blagdon Lake, which is the farm is right on the edge of Blagdon Lake. So we weren't very innovative about the name of the business because the Yo Valley is where we live and the healthy products that we want to produce and we want to be here for a long time. So so real, healthy and forever have always been key to what we've we've been about. We started off people turning up and having cream teas and we continue that today. And, and also... If you're proud about what you do and you want people to realise that you're a real place, then what better way than just saying, come and see us and judge us on what we are? And that's that's why we do the, you know, that's, and we actually want to show people the sort of, you know, we can share the beautiful valley that we live in and the and the sort of, we've got an organic garden that people can walk around and, and go and get a cream tea. You've also got farm to fridge days, cider and cheese tasting, bee safari, love that. You've got a valley festival, uh, you do weddings, you've got a restaurant, um, cooking demonstrations. Your restaurant is award winning, am I right in saying that? Yep, it's jolly nice food. My good, I well, real healthy. And I've also got all pictures of uh, when I'm, you know, I've put I've pulled a world of Tim together, and it is absolutely fascinating. And I think it captures your spirit and maybe your family's spirit. You must feel very proud of everything you've achieved, as much as your mum Mary does. Is there a sense of pride now in your family to continue the legacy of your father and take it on to other levels? Absolutely. If somebody said to me, you know, 35 years ago, this is where you'd end up, I would have just never believed them. So we've been incredibly lucky. We've had some incredibly hardworking people supporting the business. And we've had suppliers, farmers, and even the retailers have been hugely supportive. Partly, I think, because they see us as slightly bucking the trends. You know, we've not just become a, another brand in the Unilever or the PepsiCo portfolio. So everybody has supported us hugely. And therefore, that with that comes responsibility for me to try and ensure that what we do continues on, you know, on behalf of our employees and on behalf of our suppliers. So the business is now owned 20% by co-owners who are the staff who work for the business. So we're just trying to find that model that allows our business to continue and to do the stuff that we do. And I really know that that is going to be, you know, the odds of that happening are quite low because if you look at every other family business that gets to a certain size, they invariably get 
taken over because of capital availability or whatever it is. But that's not going to stop us from trying to find that sort of the middle ground between supporting suppliers and farmers into the business, employees and the family being involved in the business as well, which I think is key because if you make a decision that is the same decision that we made in every corporate boardroom, then you won't be any different. Yes, You've got to have individuals in a business to go, do you know what? Yeah, we're all going to go and have a massive piss up at Valley Fest and everybody can come and 500 Yeo Valley employees, I think, are coming this year. And that's what you just don't get with no. larger organisations. Sometimes you do. So I'm not, I'm not one of those people that says everything this small is good and everything that large is bad because you get some fantastically large, well-run businesses. Yeah. And you also get, get some pretty appallingly run small businesses. Yeah. But you can be a small, medium business and be a good business. You don't have to be large to survive. And do you have ambitions for the business? So we're going to watch our screens, I think, with Neil's, bless him, I'm not going to say so, with his masterpiece potentially coming out. But outside of that, tell me about the ambitions that you might have for the future of farming. I'm assuming that the planet and bringing to life nature in the way that you treat it is core to those plans. But is there fire still in your belly? Absolutely. So I think in the Farmers Weekly this week, you'll see that there's a sort of big pull out about soil carbon sequestration, how to get the carbon out of the atmosphere into the ground. So we're running a Yeo Valley regenerative farming project with 25 of our supplying farmers, where we're measuring and learning how to really make that happen. And also, if you go back to integrated livestock rotational farming, where you use the sun's energy to build the fertility, then you grow some barley or some wheat, and then you grow some vegetables. That is the system that we believe in. And therefore, we went through a whole process in the last couple of years. And I think Yo Valley are happy to sell any products and supply any products that we can produce in the farming system that we believe in. So, for instance, we have 250 beef cattle every year. And actually, why shouldn't we go into supplying those beef cattle to the same consumers that, that want to buy our dairy products from a healthy regenerative farming system? Wow. So, yeah. in terms of ambition, okay, we just believe in the farming system that we're dedicating ourselves to. And so, we grow oats on our farm, we grow barley, we grow peas, mainly to feed the cows. But there's no reason why we can't supply people with oats or we just literally finished lambing 600 ewes and therefore we've got a thousand lambs running around the fields of the Mendip Hills at the moment. And that's the permission, you know, this is hence your QR code, hence this story on this podcast, hence you saying you attract new customers, you keep customers and then you tell them stories. I'm now a customer for life after this story. I was already with your yogurt, but you have gained permission in my heart to go all out and I will be your consumer of everything that you produce because of your values. And this is, again, another example for those listening that doing what you love, doing it well, doing it correctly for the planet, having values is fantastic for commercial business. It's not just about doing good it's about doing good for business, but for your business in terms of that bottom line. And I'm excited 
Tim. Excited that you still got that fire in your belly. And uh, I really would love to come to the festival. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think I think it is actually, I actually mentioned the wrong band last night. I was it is playing, I can't remember. Clean Bandit are playing. Now, if I was cooler, Tim, if I was cooler, I would know that, but I'm going to write it down and have a look. Are they good? I don't know. That's a, that's sort of the... <laughs> well, you and I can stand there listening to the Clean Bandit. and Apparently, I think Travis are coming, Clean Bandit, um, and a whole load of other people. And what are the dates? It's the 4th of August to four or five days. You might get stuck in Somerset for a week if you drink too much cider. <laughs> um, so there's a whole celebration of cooking, music, other entertainment. There's a whole regenerative food area happening this year with people like Yo Valley and Riverford and Walida um, who do the skincare products because they're all into biodynamic farming. So generally, it's a sort of celebration of food, family, farming and the music. Brilliant. I actually will be coming now. At the end of this podcast, I ask my guests if this journey for you has been a roller coaster, which I can imagine it has been. If you were sitting your cart on that roller coaster, full of yogurt and amazing fresh produce, what would you say has been one of your biggest lows throughout this journey? Um, the biggest lows, I think time, you know, the, and I know that it's not an individual low, but at certain stages of your career, you think that you can do everything tomorrow. And then you suddenly get to a point where you think, actually, this is going to take time to shape and to whatever. So the point that I realised that not everything was achievable the next day or that day was the sort of point where you think, actually, that doesn't fit with my personality because <laughs> you just want to get things done. And that I've sort of reconciled myself to the fact that time is something that you can't control. And that would be the point that I had to sort of give myself a talking to to get stuck back in again. And what would you say, Tim, has been a greatest high if you had to pick one? Um, probably if I could pick two. Yeah. One of them was the point that I realised that I love selling. I'm not a very good salesman because I normally just get a sale because I do it too cheap. Um, <laughs> but the Queen came to to visit our business for a tour when she was in Somerset about ooh, 15 years ago. And being able to take the Queen around and show her what we do and introduce her to people and realise how all the people who worked for us enjoyed that day. And I guess slightly, you know, I forgot about it for about 10 years, but the whole focus... I guess, with the death of the Duke of Edinburgh and now the, the Queen's celebrations this year, um, the realisation of actually what a huge privilege that was to host a visit from somebody who is probably the most famous person on the planet and probably deserves the respect of everybody around the world. Yeah. So that was a... Um, I can imagine. That was a, that was a great day. I can imagine. And for your whole team as well, just to be part of this brand you've created, Tim. This has just been such an enlightening conversation and you worried that you'd been a bit doom and gloom. I think opposite. You've actually opened our eyes with knowledge and experience and we're hearing it from someone who has done it for 30 years and we are privileged to have listened to the truth, not what we read, not what the government tells us, the truth. And so I really thank you for that. You've... Um, 
written a letter to your younger self. This is the moment that I'm going to ask you to read it out. I hand over to you. I don't know what you're going to say, but I take my glasses off and I look forward to it. Just to say that writing and reading is not my best topic. Nor mine. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Dear Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you with the benefit of 50 years of hindsight. I hope it helps you figure life out. Forever the optimist, you will always look for solutions. What you don't know is that decades of industrial farming have taken their toll on our planet. If you decide to follow 500 years of family tradition and become a farmer, focus your efforts on producing natural healthy food that nourishes both people and planet. Championing organic for everyone through people's shopping baskets will help reverse the harm. Let's go back 50 years to where you are now. Dyslexic and heading to boarding school at the age of eight. Sunday mornings will be torture, having to sit for an hour and compose a weekly letter home. Creative writing not being your greatest strong point. Unfortunately, you'll never get further than dear mum and dad, all fine, played rugby, lost, how are the dogs, loved him. At the time, you never understood the need for those weekly letters. But now as a parent with four children, you acknowledge how intense the strength of the umbilical cord of communication can be. What a difference to today's interconnected world and what a greater challenge it will be to create independent, self-confident citizens when faced with the constant supply of information, opinions and contact. Who or what do you believe? Instead, follow some simple lessons of life. Work hard and have fun along the way. Give back more than you take. Don't care about what others think of you. And always remember, nothing in nature blooms all year. Be patient, work with it, and not against it. Note to self, stop telling children to text when they get there and leave the mobile at home. Just to clarify, don't worry about school. You'll thoroughly enjoy it and have a fun time. Too much fun, according to those in charge. Just remember, school should be what it says on the tin, where you learn and can make mistakes. Mistakes are a crucial part of learning. Not learning from your mistakes would be the biggest mistake of all. Simple communications make the biggest difference to people every day. As a father, son, husband, uncle and employer, make this a goal. My father always said to me, after all is said and done, there's far more said than done. So if you want to make a difference, decide what difference you want to make and kick the bloody door in. Don't just talk about it. So back to communication. Well done. Great work. Thanks. Nice dog. See you later, Tim. (laughs) One of my favourite letters of all time. (laughs) I'm not sure about the tense because... I don't really understand when you go from writing it from a per because I, I was sh- shit at English and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's the best letter. Remind me what your father said. After all is said and done, there's far more said than done. It's so true. Tim, you're a true bloody inspiration, honestly. And your thing about time has really touched me as a woman in a hurry, nicknamed Holly Hurricane when I was younger. I'm not very good with time, but I'm learning as I get older, turning 45 this year, 
that actually sometimes time is required to grow greatness. And I'm sure, you know, that's what you're, you're talking about as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm battling with it, but I'm getting there. But just your words today and a privilege to understand your, your world, your industries. And as I said, you're going to have so many loyal fans for everything that you're building, Tim, after this podcast. And we cannot wait to support you. So thank you so much for your time today. Holly, absolute pleasure. And um, we'll, I'll send you the details of Valleyfest and we'll send you some tickets if you, Will you? If you want to I come. actually mean it. I really want to come. I'm going to have to look up the band and then I'm going to learn their, their top song and maybe you and I can be at the front of the crowd singing. Absolutely. And um, who is it? Um, Sunday afternoon is the Dolly Parton tribute band dress-up session. Oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> what is not to love? And then I want to go on a bee safari. The bee safari. I went on it last week and I almost cried. It was the most quintessentially... In, there's a lady called Jean Werner who's written books... Anything but a honeybee is her topic. And it was massively messing down with rain. So the 10 minutes that we went out into the garden, she has a little pot and she runs out and she catches bloody bees, bumblebees. And she was utterly brilliant. And it was probably the best two hours of the month for me. She is just a star. Oh my gosh, it just keeps coming and it's so brilliant. Thank you, Tim. I will see you front of the stage valley fest and we really appreciate everything if you win the dress up competition you actually have to go on the stage (laughs) i think that'll be safely not my prize (laughs) take care okay brilliant lovely to talk to you cheers thank you tim Bye. Bye. bye bye Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.